If you would, remain standing and go ahead and open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. That's Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to back up just a tiny little bit. Uh, we'll begin reading in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman Naomi, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter in law who loves you, who has more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and he began and began his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, And a son has been born to Naomi. The name is Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Please be seated. You're probably going to hear me misread a lot of stuff this morning. I'm just warning you. Last week we took a look at the beginning of Ruth chapter 4 and I challenged us to just take some time and sit in awe of who God is and what he's done. As I've done that this week, I've been blown away looking at the text of Ruth, seeing behind the scenes God working and the amount of work and how he worked to bring about his will. So often today, Christians like to make God look like man. They like to bring him down. They like to elevate us. And we end up with a weak God that is just waiting for us to act so that he can do something about it. As we see in Ruth and all over Scripture, that is just not the case. We worship a sovereign, acting living God who is working to this day to still bring about his will. So I know we haven't spent very much time in Ruth. It's been a very quick trip, but it's four chapters. And we've seen this epic love story taking place. And I'll remind you up front, as Casey said, because he said it so well the other day, that the real love story, yes, we see the love that Ruth has for Naomi. Yes, we see the love that Boaz shows to Ruth. But the real love story is what is happening in the background with God providing for his people. We got to see a small window into very early Jewish life. We got to see how God's law was good and how it worked during these times. But I want to remind us of when this time period is. We're sitting in the time uh, of, the, of the judges, some 450 some odd year period of time. Somewhere in there, we have this story. And I want to go back to Judges just a little bit, because 
the very last verse in Judges gives a very good description of what Israel was doing at the time. It says, in those days there, were no king, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We can go back to t- chapter 2 of Judges and see this pattern that starts happening over and over for hundreds of years. In Judges chapter 2, we get this short description. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the balls. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the balls and the Asheroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. But then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. We can see this happen, and you wouldn't think it would take more than maybe one or two times to understand that obedience to the Lord produces good things for the nation of Israel. Disobedient brings the suffering that they're complaining about. But the text goes on and says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those afflicted and oppressed. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. So we see this pattern over and over and over again for over 400 years. Israel doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. God allowing the nation to be conquered and oppressed by its neighboring nations. Israel would suffer, and they would cry out to the Lord for help. God would send them a deliverer and a judge. But once that judge died, the cycle would start all over again. For over 400 years, we see this pattern go on. So somewhere during this time is where Ruth comes in. And even at the very beginning of the story of Ruth, we see a small picture into Israel's disobedience here with Naomi and Elimelech and his sons going out to Moab to marrying foreign daughters, leaving their inheritance. And we see Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband dies. The two sons die, leaving widows of Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah Naomi urges her daughter-in-laws to leave and return to their own families to be cared for and possibly remarry. We see Orpah do exactly that. But Ruth shows her deep love for Naomi. 
and refuses to leave and gives this beautiful response when Naomi says, go. When she says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where the Lord, where, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do the same, do so to me, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. Through the entire book of Ruth, we see that Ruth is a woman of very high character. Now, I find it very interesting, if you were to look in the Hebrew Bible, right before the book of Ruth is the book of Proverbs. And at the, at the end of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, we have a picture of an excellent woman. Turn there with me. Let's, let's read that, because I, I, I do believe that, that Ruth is a wonderful example of the type of woman that is talked about just pages before in Hebrew Scripture. Proverbs 31, beginning of verse 10, reads, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax, work and, uh, works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands uh, to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes her bed coverings for her. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen gar garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teachings of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and, are, and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised." Give her of the fruit of your hands and let her works praise her in the gates. I don't think it's by chance that in Hebrew scripture we have this right before the introduction of Ruth. So we meet Ruth who gleans in a field to provide food for herself and Naomi. She meets this distant relative Boaz we know from Scripture he's a man of some kind of means, of, of high character. And Boaz shows kindness to Ruth, not only allowing her to glean in his field, but even instructing his young men to leave extra food for her. We find out later that Boaz is one of the kinsmen redeemers that has both the ability and the responsibility to, re to redeem Naomi's land. We see that 
plan that Naomi develops for Ruth. When she says, my daughter, should, not, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well? Is not Boaz our relative with these young women? Uh, with, with whose young women you were? See, the, he is winnowing barley at night at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourselves and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. We see a high moral response from Boaz in this situation when he replies in verse 9 of chapter 3, Who are you? And we see Ruth's response of, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me. Uh, over your servant, for you are redeemer. We see Ruth make this commitment that he will go into town and either have the closer redeemer redeem the land and marry Ruth, or he will do it himself. And we see on the same day, Boaz does exactly that. He goes to the city gates, and he redeems Naomi's land and marries Ruth. At the very end of last week, we covered this, this storybook ending in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and became his wife. We see Naomi restored. We see her no longer bitter. We see a child in Obed come. But then we end with this genealogy. What was this epic love story that honestly it sounds like something we should read our children children at night it has the drama it has the romance it has loyalty it has good examples of people with good moral behavior there's even a little twist with this unnamed redeemer it has the once upon a time and the happily ever after in it we see that it's a beautiful story of kindness and love and redemption but it's only part, it's a tiny part of the story that God is weaving throughout history. So many people will take their Bible and use it as some kind of reference book. If I need to look up a verse or I'm going to randomly open it up to a topic and read it. They treat it like a systematic theology that you can go back and go, I want to learn about X, Y, or Z, so I'm going here, here, here. But this is not a reference book. It's not arranged with a topical index. It's not a thing that you just go and say, hey, I want to read about justification, so I turn to page X, Y, Z and read about it. What we have is an overarching story of God revealing himself. 66 books. Someone will probably correct me on this later, but I'm going to say 40 some odd writers, maybe. Written over some 1,500 years. We have historical narrative. We have poetry, wisdom, prophecy, the gospels, the epistles. We have the apocalyptic texts. But it's all coming together to give this one beautiful story. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture, 
All of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Within Scripture, we have a story of redemptive history. So let, let's look at the genealogy once again in Ruth 18, or I'm sorry, Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Some of these may, names you might know, some you may not know, and that's okay. But I want us to start thinking, why supply this genealogy here? We know it comes later than the writing of Ruth because we know of David. Why is this at the end of Ruth? Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Why put that in here? I truly believe that the reason that we have things like genealogy, especially this one, is because it takes us outside of the story that is self-contained in Ruth and shows God providentially and sovereignly working all throughout history. Yes, we have a story of God sovereignly working to bring Naomi and Ruth together, to, to bring Ruth and Boaz together. We see God sovereignly working to alleviate their suffering and loss and the emptiness of Naomi, to bring them to fulfillment and contentment. But with this, with this geology, with this genealogy, we begin to zoom out into the broader story of redemptive history. Yes, while God worked in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, he was also working out throughout history to bring about Christ. As I said in the beginning, it's, it is good sometimes to sit in awe of what God has done. And you could read just about any story in the Bible and sit in awe of what God has done, but it is when we zoom out and we put these stories together in one history that we can truly sit in awe of what God has done. So we zoom out to the larger story of the Bible that we see that the Lord has been working out His will from the foundation of the world. And He does so by working in the lives of individuals. In this genealogy, we have five generations listed. Ten individuals, two on each side. I'm sorry, five on each side. We can assume that there are some gaps in this genealogy because it appears to cover, at my best math, somewhere around 480 years of history. It shows God sovereignly working before Ruth, with Ruth, after Ruth, to bring about his will. This genealogy links all the way back to the time of the patriarchs, the building up of Israel, and leads all the way up to Israel's most famous king. And we know our history after that. It leads from David 
all the way to Christ himself. Even in Ruth, in this few verses with a genealogy, we can see the fulfillment of promises that God made all the way back in Genesis, back in creation when man fell, where he says to the woman, I will put enmity between you, or says to the servant, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The book of Ruth is a very important part of that redemptive history that fills, fulfills that prophecy. It fulfills the promises given to Abram. When God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all... And in you all, the families of earth shall be blessed. We see that in this genealogy being worked out. I don't want any eyes to roll in the back of their head, but let's turn to Matthew 1. And I'm going to mispronounce probably every name on here. But Matthew uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the coming weeks, we'll begin working verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. But start thinking about now. Why this genealogy here? So bear with me. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, as we go through here, see if you recognize the names. Think back to the Old Testament stories. See if you can see God working in redemptive history here. So let me start back at Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of, this is one I can't figure out, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shethiel, and Shetiel, the, the, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, and Azar, Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Elihud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the, hus the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. 
So in all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Many people don't like to go through these genealogies. But I, for one, love them because we can see the names we recognize. We can go back to the stories in the Old Testament and read about God working during those time period. We see generation after generation after generation of God working throughout history to bring about a Savior. What it doesn't show is what people try to do to God of making him more like man, of us elevating somehow ourselves closer to God. What we see so clearly in the story of redemptive history is that our God is not a God that is some kind of cosmic vending machine. It's not a God that's just sitting and waiting to see what happens. He's not a God who is unwilling or unable to act in his creation. He's not a God who answers to his creation but rather he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. As the the Lord spoke in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my uh, purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from the far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. A God that reacts to man, that has to wait for man to act, for God to decide what to do, is no God at all. A God that is just here to answer our prayers for health and wealth is not a God. A God that sovereignly works in history, saying, if I have purposed it, it will be done. That is a God that is alive and active in his creation. A little bit further in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, Christ says, so, you, uh, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. When I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. That is not a cosmic vending machine. That is not a God that is here to give us our heart's desires. That is not a God that knocks on your heart and politely asks if he can come in. even down to the lowliest of creature, a tiny sparrow. Not a one of them will fall to the ground apart 
from your father. We see God's sovereignty all throughout Ruth. We see it all throughout Scripture. And it should be something we sit in awe of every day. Another thing that we have with these genealogies found in Scripture is they show what God uses to accomplish His will. That He uses sinful, unworthy wretches like me to bring about His will. If we look through that genealogy in Matthew, it is a list of sinners. Some probably more than others. But let's take a look at just a few of these in the genealogy of Christ himself. You have Tamar, the mother of Perez and Zerah. If you remember her story, while yes, she does have a seat in this genealogy of Christ, she's the one that dressed as a prostitute to fool her father to sleep with him and and impregnate her. Rahab didn't dress as a prostitute, but actually was a prostitute. A Canaanite woman. We have Ruth, well, a, a woman of good character. Still, from the outside looking in, it's a Moabite woman. At the time, would have been a despised foreigner. We have Bathsheba, who was seduced by King David, who committed adultery and killed her husband. The men aren't much better in this line either. We have Judah, who slept with a prostitute, only to find out it was his daughter-in-law. We have David, who killed Uriah to cover up his adultery. We have Manasseh. If you go read about Manasseh, he is one of the greatest idolaters out of any of the kings of Judah. Why would the Messiah come from such a sword line as this? Well, a little bit further in Matthew 1, we see it when the angel comes to Joseph. We see it in Jesus' name itself. When the angel comes to Joseph, he says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. In Jesus' own words, in John chapter 3, he says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, he might, that the world might be saved through him. In Luke chapter 19, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Look at the way Jesus lived his life. He was known as a man that was friends to tax collectors and sinners. He spent his time with the sick and the needy and those of most need. Even at his death, dying a sinner's death, dying a criminal's death, he's flanked by two sinners. Jesus left his throne, put on flesh, and dwelt among us for a purpose, to seek and save the lost. So I'll tell you exactly as I said last week. If you've never heard the gospel, if you're unsure what the gospel is, I'll make it as simple as possible. We're all sinners. We have all disobeyed God. Nothing we can do of our own will change that. But God, before the foundation of the world, pick up a Bible, read any page of it, and you will see God working redemption in it. 
before the foundation of the world had a plan to redeem his people. He sent his only son, who put on flesh to dwell among us, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and take our punishment for sin. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So I beg you, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ, and Christ alone for salvation, repent and believe. Turn from your sins and believe. You'll hear people say that there's some special prayer you have to pray, some uh, aisle you got to walk down. I will just yield to Scripture. When in Romans 9 it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So as we finish up Ruth today, I hope you take time to see the beauty of Scripture, to fall more in love with it, to know that we can take a step back from what we are reading and see what the Lord has done throughout history. In Ruth, we only get a small glimpse of it, but it is there. You can find it in Ruth. How many times do we read something in Ruth that made it sound like it was a coincidence? There happened to be a famine. Israel happened to get food. Ruth happens to go to Boaz's field. He just so happens to be there. Uh, Boaz just so happens to be a kinsman redeemer. The list goes on and on and on. But when we put it together, we see God sovereignly working, not only for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, but even in their suffering, in their hardship, he was bringing about the Savior of the world. There was no coincidence in any of this. If God is sovereign, he's, he's sovereign over everything. If he's not sovereign over everything, then he is not sovereign at all. So I would encourage you that you may be in a season of having financial troubles. You may be a season of pain or of suffering. You may be in a season of loss or sickness or anxiety or depression Cling to God's sovereignty. Cling to God's providence. Trust that the Lord loves you and he cares for you and provides you. And even in your suffering and in your hard times, he has a purpose in it. Because just as true as it is on every page of Scripture, it is true that God is still working today. Cling to the fact that even in the darkest times of our lives, the Lord is with us. So I would urge you to cling to Scripture, know that God is sovereign, know He's providential, pick up any book of the Bible and search out God's sovereign hand in it. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, there is no attribute more comforting to God's children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules their afflictions, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly content than the doctrine of their, mas uh, of their master over all of creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God 
and his right to sit upon that throne. For it is God upon the throne who we must trust. So I'll leave us today with a text out of Romans 8. And I hope, and I hope that it serves as an encouragement that God is sovereignly and providentially working in our lives, even at our darkest times. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be real, revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us in a way to where we can freely pick up your word, that we can read it, that we can see your long-suffering, we can see our sinfulness, and we can see your sovereignty and provision. Lord, we can look back in history and see you working redemption for your people. But Lord, the scripture also provides us the great promise that Christ will return one day. That when the time comes, Christ will come to judge this world. What a fearful thing, Lord, to think. But you give us hope in your words that there is salvation that there is justification, that there is sanctification, Lord. So give us the desire to share that good news with those around us. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.